The creative industries are an increasingly important part of the global economy, yet many of the stereotypes of creatives versus suits suggest that this sector is still somehow at odds with traditional management and business practices. As creativity becomes more important for successful businesses, can this stereotype still be the case? And how can businesses adapt to accommodate creative employees? Dr Chris Bilton from Warwick Centre for Cultural Policy Studies has just published his book, Management and Creativity. Chris, there's some debate over the definition of creative industries. What do we mean by creativity and creative industry? Let's start with what do we mean by creative industries. The first thing to say is it's a relatively new term, which was popularised certainly in this country when the UK government came into power in 1997 and they started talking about the creative industries as opposed to what we used to call the cultural industries. One of the things that that definition has done is it's moved us away from an idea of industries based on culture and specific cultural artistic forms towards an idea of a supply chain and towards a definition based on intellectual property. The UK government definition in their mapping document talks about uh, creative industries being those industries which, and I'm paraphrasing here, have the potential to generate profit through uh, intellectual property, through the creation or exploitation of intellectual property. And that um, immediately introduces an idea of creativity as a commodity, as something that you can quantify and that you can produce outputs and you can exploit those outputs. And it sits very nicely with this broader definition of the creative economy, which people like John Hawkins have been talking about. So we've gone from something that I suppose was almost a, um, a secondary category to the arts into something that is becoming much more all-embracing. Mm. And, of course, governments are very enthusiastic. We're not talking about new industries here, then. We're talking about a re-badging of old, in, of old industries? Exactly. I mean, there's, again, one of the problems with the definition is that where do you, where do you stop? Because almost all, def- all, all industries, to some extent, depend upon the generation of intellectual property. Almost all industries depend upon individual creativity, skill and talent. Who isn't creative? You know, and it, who, which industry is going to put their hand up and say, we are the uncreative industry? Nobody. So there's always going to be a sort of arbitrariness about that catalogue. And, and it does set up a kind of confusing expectation of what the creative economy or the creative industries can, should be. It, it becomes almost a, a, a game, really, as to how long you extend the catalogue. And I think partly to avoid that, the UK government have, have listed these 13 industries which they regard to be the core creative industries. But, of course, once you include things like um, software and, and publishing, well, you know, you could start to extend that indefinitely. And one of the things that people like Hawkins have done is saying, well, let's turn this around and talk about the creative economy and talk about copyright industries. Let's talk about the automobile industry. You know, the average car mm. contains several thousand patents now um, and it's actually more of a, a, um, a summary a, a collection of intellectual property than it is a collection of metal and glass so you start to get into this real problem with defining what the creative industries are and I think that the, the definition was opportunistic really it's a way, it was a way of as you say rebadging mm. but it's not really thought through in any very coherent way personally I prefer the definition of creative industries in relation to the product, in relation to uh, symbolic goods and the idea that these these industries deal in ideas, emotions and experiences which are intangible and which have no fixed value. And once you get into that, then you start to introduce all the problems around management because how do you manage something where you don't really know how much something is worth until somebody's consumed it, a film for example. Mm. 
and there's no correlation between inputs and outputs. So the whole idea of the supply chain, which is very much there in the UK government definition, starts to fall apart as well. I guess we have this myth, don't we, of, of the creative employee, uh, you know, a, a coffee fueled person sat in mm-hmm. weird brainstorm meetings, big sort of paintings and things in the mm. office and uh, basketball hoops and mm. um, all that mm. kind of crazy mm. stuff. That's not the reality at all, is it? Well, it kind of is the reality to an extent, and it's almost a role that people play, because, of course, it gives you a certain amount of licence if you've got a basketball hoop in your office. You're allowed to wear different clothes and talk in a different way and turn up late to meetings, and that's quite nice. Uh, Richard Florida's talked about the the no-collar workplace. But, of course, the no-collar workplace still has its own rules and its own hierarchies, and um, an industry like advertising, for example, is actually very hierarchical. I mean, it appears to be very creative and very flat, and everybody's mucking in and everybody's doing what they want to do. But you get you get hidden cultural barriers that are imposed upon what you're allowed to do. What you you know, for example, you you have to go out for drinking after work. It's compulsory. It's not something that's pleasurable even. Um, but I think the stereotype of the creative employee is starting to unravel. And again, advertising is a good example of that. That whereas maybe ten fifteen years ago, the creative was somebody who went away and, you know, maybe took some drugs and drank a lot of coffee and, you know, came up with an amazing creative idea and you forgave them for all of the rubbish that they talked because they, they delivered. Now, increasingly, that's not the way that advertising creative departments are working. The creative, the creative is having to be much better at interfacing with clients, is having to mm-hmm. be much more um, cognizant of the management side of the industry. And equally, and this is partly where the book comes in, the management side of the industry is having to become more creative, of course, and and that the idea that one can draw a line between the managers and the creatives and say, you know, you do the creative stuff in that room over there, play with your toys, and we'll manage you, is starting to break down, and I think that's a good thing too, about mm. time. If these barriers are breaking down, to what extent can the traditional canon of management practice be applied to a creative environment, or do we have to look at new strategies for managing um, these new economies. A lot of the new strategies are being talked about in business schools, and I mean, what, the, the book that I've written grew out of um, a course that I teach at Warwick called the MA in Creative and Media Enterprises. And I had a lot of initial discussion with people in Warwick Business School about this because the a lot of the ideas about creativity in management have been around for quite some time. They've just never really filtered across into the creative industry, strangely enough. And uh, my own experience of working in, in the arts um, was that management practices were very old-fashioned, very bureaucratic, and were driven either by a sort of neoliberal idea about profitability and growth or by ideas about, in, certainly in the public sector arts, around ideas of accountability and not much really on trying to harness creativity in the management process. And I, again, I think that's something that's changing. Ideas about strategy, for example are becoming much more um, flexible, opportunistic and allowing for ideas about planning and and future strategy to to evolve and grow out of discussions rather than being imposed from above. Uh, Equally, I think organisational structures are becoming flatter, uh, more team-based and a lot of the the tactics that have been going on in the creative industries are starting to be adopted by managers more broadly. So how is the creative process changing then? Well, I think that one has to be careful. And this was, I mean, I'm picking up on your earlier question, what mm-hmm. is creativity? Because there is a, there is a stereotype which we've referred to of, of creativity being this very spontaneous, natural um, process that just happens mm-hmm. and that is generated by individuals with great talent and, and genius. 
But the reality of when you look at how products are made in the creative industries, it's a much more collaborative process, and it's also a much more deliberate process. Um, and if you then relate that back into psychological definitions of creativity, psychological definitions of creativity encompass paradoxes. They, they include ideas of innovation and novelty, but they also include ideas of usefulness and value. And they include processes that are very divergent. So thinking processes um, typically describes lateral thinking. People mm. like De Bono have talked about this. But they also include logic, memory, tradition, self-awareness, all of these things. And the creative process is starting to wake up. You know, people, the creative process has always included these elements, but I think people who manage the creative processes are starting to wake up to the fact that it's not just a case of finding your genius and locking them in a room. It's, it actually requires a much, more, a much more deliberate, planned approach. And again, if you talk to artists, hmm. talk to artists, painters, musicians, they're not wandering lonely as a cloud. They're actually deliberately thinking through processes, and there's a combination of thinking styles involved. And arguably the real, the real capacity that creative people have is the ability to switch modes, to switch from one way of thinking to another, and to be very alert and good at listening in on different bits of their brain and mining the different thought processes they have. I mean, we all, I guess, like to think that we're creative, and, we, and I'm sure we all are, but we're maybe not so good at drawing out those elements and making something out of them. And I think that's what artists are good at mm. whether it's a novelist wandering around with a notebook or an artist who is continually taking note of their own thought processes and trying mm. to make sense of them so what are the practical implications of that the, thinking about creativity as a process in terms of what are the things that i can do to encourage people to be creative first of all i think to to start to think about creative processes rather than creative people mm. because there is a tendency in in industry to to look at creativity as a kind of personnel issue so how do you identify and train creative people and you send away your 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 people on creativity training courses where they they play with some colored balls in a room somewhere then they come back to the office and they feel hugely frustrated because all these creative ideas what do they do they they sit back at the same desk with the same people doing the same things as they were before and the ideas that they come out with are not being picked up or taken on board by management or by the, the structures that are around them so the first lesson I think is that we, we need to think about creativity as a process, as a system which is about not just having ideas but recognising and developing them um, and that's going back to the, the point I was making before about different parts of the process meshing together, the idea generation the idea development, the idea dissemination, all need to be there and if, if managers are serious about making their organisations more creative, they need to look much more at their organisations and less at their, their staff, really. Mm. I do sometimes think that creative management and the way that creativity is talked about in management can be problematic as well. Mm. Um, it, it can often be equated just with you know, wearing casual clothes and um, you know, talking in a certain hip way about, about management as being about innovation and change. Uh, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of rhetoric. It plays into management's idea of itself as as being hip and cool and you know people like Steve Jobs given glowing testimonials in Fortune magazine this is and it's very heroic and it's very individualized and it's actually 
the opposite of the kind of definition of creativity and creative process that I've been talking about, mm. which is about systems and and um, networks and and relationships rather than about individual super talented geniuses who are going to change the world and make it you know and be creative in some unseen unknown mm. way. Do we still have a place though for those kind of super genius roles? Well, I think we we have a place for them in terms of branding, and you know it's it's a it's a way in the film industry, for example. It's always mm. been a way of making a film um, take more money at the box office is by putting a certain name on mm. the marquee um, and and saying, "Well, this person, this director, this actor means that it's going to be better." And you know, think of Salvador Dali and his napkins. The genius brand is a way of selling things, but individual talent and brilliance on its own is never really going to be enough. Particularly as as consumers become more sophisticated, markets become more sophisticated. Mm that you're going to have to find ways of taking those individual talents and developing them and helping them to thrive. If you look at the great geniuses of history, they've actually also been very hard-working. They've had lots of other opportunities. Mozart's you know, father trained him, supported him, helped him. He wasn't just this child prodigy who was spouting symphonies out of his head at, mm. you know, at the age of six, which is what he's often presented as. It, he, was part, he, he benefited from a certain system around him. Um, Coleridge writing his poem Kubla Khan, you know, he he actually worked quite hard on that draft and and developed it and thought about it and the dream was part of the process. It wasn't mm. the uh, it wasn't the end of the process. I'm just thinking about a lot of the the developments at the moment in um, of internet technologies, open source platforming, where you've got mm. creative environments that are actually incredibly open and not mm. restricted to a particular organisation. Are there new forms of creativity we're seeing emerging? Mm. I think open source is a very is a very interesting example, and and uh, if you look at how um, how the creative industries work with fans and with um, communities gathering around a successful artist or successful products, they the, it's, there's a sense in which the consumer base almost takes them over, mm. and they start to feed in and they start to find things in those products that maybe you didn't know were there, and that seems to be partly what's ha- what managers are trying to tap into with things like open source they're saying well we don't know everything about this and nor, nor should we pretend that we do let's open it up to other people and see what they make of it and it's it's a it's a risk because of course if you do that there's a potential that you lose control of your brand and your product mm. and it starts being taken over and there are famous cases of that like the um the nike sweatshop trainer do you know that one that was yeah, the, yeah 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 where they the the guy customise his trainer by writing sweatshop on it and um, then published the entire correspondence on the internet which made Nike look very foolish if you open up your brand or your product to other people to play with then you are taking a bit of a risk but on the other hand you're also acknowledging that creative processes and creative ideas tend to evolve through systems and through interactions and through networks rather than through individuals sitting alone Mm. Is there a problem though with the emphasis on creativity and that um, for businesses, the bottom line is always the critical thing, and I suppose the c- creativity is something that's actually quite difficult to measure, mm. um, particularly, I suppose, in terms of productivity. Is that a problem when trying to uh, encourage businesses to think about creativity? It is a problem measuring creativity, and and there are there's a famous article by Theodore Levitt when he was writing in the 1960s, you know, a, a, a traditional business guru really if you like and he he was he wrote an article called um about creativity saying well creativity is actually a bit of a nuisance for most organizations it disrupts 
people come in and, and they, they come up with ideas which bear no relation to the capacity of the organisation to implement them. And we actually need less creativity rather than more in our organisations. Which I thought was a nice, a nice flip side to some of the current debates where everybody's talking about being more creative, being more creative. You're right. I mean, in the end, if it's not, if it doesn't have value or purpose or usefulness, then it's then there's no point. And that's one of the problems with an idea of creativity as something that's free floating and disconnected and is simply about having ideas. Mm. Um, ideas are cheap, and they always have been. It's, it's what you do with them that counts. It's trying to turn them into something. And again, you know, you you can see that happening in the creative industries, looking at at how increasingly the way in which ideas are packaged and presented, for example, through podcasts or through through MP3s, mm. it is actually more almost more important than than the product itself. Think about ringtones. You know, people will pay you know, three three four pounds for a ringtone. They'll pay seventy p to download the same piece of music in a much better <laughs> resolution, much better quality. But what they're paying for is customization. An idea of themselves, self-actualization, all of those things, and that's increasingly what what the creative industries are starting to think about. Saying, okay, let's look at how these ideas are being used, and I think it's the same for business. You know, let, let's look at how how ideas are being made useful. Let's look at whether our patents are actually doing anything. You know, we, you, you have to you have to invest a lot of money into in order to create that mm. patent. Well, what's what are you actually going to do with it? Is it going to fit? How's it going to fit within your organisation? Um, thinking about that that systematic use of creativity and usefulness is there in all of the, the classic psychological mm. definitions usefulness fitness for purpose value all of those things i suppose we've been talking about knowledge economy for an awful long time are we sort of now saying that actually that's actually arrived yeah well i think that ideas about creativity fit very nicely with ideas about the knowledge economy because it is about how ideas are leveraged and used rather than simply having ideas and again within a knowledge economy it's possible to have too much knowledge in the same as it's possible mm. to have too much creativity in a creative economy and just get blinded by data smog. And how do you actually exploit that, make it useful, apply it, becomes the challenge. Mm. Um, and and arguably the create well, that's what the creative industries do and have been doing for a long time, is taking ideas and turning them into something that people can use. Are creative industries kind of more suited to an international market? Well, that's... Um, Interesting. I mean, they're both local and international, of course, and and typically creative ideas are generated often at a very low level of organisation and activity, often very spontaneously and, and informally, and often growing out of very specific subcultures. So, for example, growing out of, um, you know, an area of London like Hoxton or um, Brixton or growing out of the Manchester music scene. So they, they have very local subcultural Roots in t- at the level of, of, of production and idea generation, but then the market for those ideas is indeed global. And one of the interesting things is how the local and the global mesh together in the creative industry. So you have very localized, specific products suddenly being marketed on the other side of the world. Um, and I guess one of the challenges for policy is how do you how do you try to um, bridge that gap between the local and the international? Um, a lot of the effort from uh, of policy effort in the creative industries began in the 1980s at urban level. Urban cultural policy became very interested in the idea of what was then called the cultural industries, mm. trying to support local um, film, television, music industries, and that's still going on today with you know, projects in in cities geared towards very specific local initiatives. But 
inevitably the people in those industries want to tap into global markets. So you're trying to, as a, as a policymaker, think, well, are there, can we help them tap into local markets? Is there a local alternative to the global supermarket? Mm. It's a bit like you know, agriculture, <laughs> trying to try yeah. and set up the equivalent of farmers' markets for, for the creative industries. Um, and there are obviously fears more, uh, I suppose, fears about what, what effect it has on the culture for globalisation to, to take something that's very local and display it in a different context in a different um, to a different market mm. and uh, whether that distorts or, or devalues or ultimately exploits that, that culture yeah. Is it easier to be creative now? You know the idea that someone can put together an album in their bedroom does technology make creativity easier? It does in a sense in that the tools are there but I would argue that in the same way as I'm saying that the, the talent isn't enough, nor is the technology enough, you kind of need both. Mm. Um, there was a point when Apple Macs came out and we all started designing our own leaflets and we thought that they looked good. <laughs> and of course they didn't, they looked terrible. And, you know, home-based home te- desktop publishing has a lot to answer for in terms of bad design. And I guess there's a, there's a similar thing with the kind of, you know, the bedroom music. Yes, of course, you can... You can now make movies, make make music for very little, very little cost, but the refining and developing of those t- ideas is is where the cost comes, and of course the marketing and distribution is where the real cost comes. And uh, you know, a film like Blair Witch, which was allegedly made for you know five thousand dollars or whatever it mm. was, it actually had an awful lot of money set spent on tidying it up, marketing it, and disseminating it. And even the the DIY marketing campaign. For Blair, which was was sort of supported by a much bigger investment mm. outside that, so yes, we can all we can all be creative, but it's a case of where you know where do you go with that, and and the, the flash of inspiration in the bath is not really the answer. And we all, I guess, we've all had our temporary moments of genius when we thought, you know, I've had a great idea, or I thought of that first. But the point is that you may have thought of it first, but you didn't do anything about it. <laughs> Somebody else went out and made that invention and turned it into something that worked, and, and, and you, you stayed in your bath. Mm. Do you think, I mean, in terms of consumers, that consumers are looking for more creativity from their services and products than perhaps they were 10 years ago? Um, a good example perhaps might be the Dyson vacuum cleaner, mm. which is a very functional object, but, mm. Mm. you know... You know, in terms of design, it's incredibly mm. striking, and the design was, in some respects, one of the reasons that many people bought it. Mm. Do we have a more creative, aware consumer base now? I think, arguably, we do. Certainly, in the richer countries where markets are becoming more saturated, and that one of the differentiators is is design and creativity. And there is an argument for saying that we are moving towards an economy where design, creativity, is becoming increasingly important, and that, of course, is part of this mm. whole creative economy rhetoric. Um, but I think that I think there's some truth in that because we we are we look around and if we have a straight choice between two things that do the same job, we'll take the thing that has the creative design attached to it. Having said that, Dyson vacuum cleaners also are very good at. I haven't got one, but I understand that they're very good at sucking <laughs> dust up. So you kind of you do need them to work as well as simply be creative. And there's a I suppose with the hype around the creative economy, there's a sense in which we're starting to think well. It's all about creativity. It's all about branding. It's all about perception. That, but you know, Nike trainers still have to function as footwear as well as as walking brands, and and the same with the same with any sort of design aspect of the creative mm. economy. Yes, it has to look good, but it has to work, and and that goes back to this idea about creativity 
and you know being analogous to manufacturing in a sense in that that you you have to have ideas but you have to make them work Mm. and in terms of preparing people for entering this environment are there any things that schools or universities need to be learning to do differently to Mm. help prepare people to think in a creative way well um they should obviously all come and do the ma and creative media enterprises at (laughs) warwick (laughs) um but i i think that one of the issues around creative education is and, and educating people to be more creative is that a lot of what how creativity works referred to before is this idea of bridging different capacities mm. in the brain and, and, and making connections both between different frames of reference and this is a classic definition from Arthur Kirstler by association you think connecting two habitually disconnected frames of reference as one does with a metaphor or, or a joke or a mm. pun is one of the capacities that is really seems to be central to to definitions of creativity so thinking about how do you encourage people to make connections between different ways of thinking at school age is becomes very important and the way that the way that we educate um and i you know i've got kids in primary school now and i teach in a university it is very siloed and very separated and we tend to separate out areas of expertise so you know people from art school never go near um, somebody from a business school and vice versa and they're kept they're kept apart when in fact that you know if you want to encourage creativity you want to expose people to as many different connections as possible and and help them support them in the idea of making connections that's ultimately where where creative thinking occurs is in the in the, the ability to make connections between different disciplines frames of reference and styles of thinking you know making connections in your own head mm. and if there's a definition of genius I would say it's more to do with that than it is to do with um, the, the kind of romantic stereotype that we've, that we've inherited from, from you know, the 19th century or, or earlier. Chris, thank you very much.